It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 238, Nehemiah, Part 1. The setting for the book of Nehemiah starts in Susa, in the capital of the Persian Empire, and it transitions to the reborn state of Israel. The geopolitical situation is the following. The Athenians now are masters of the eastern Mediterranean region. Sparta was somewhat quiet about the situation, for Athens was ahead of a league of Greek states in what is called the Delian League, named after a location of the headquarters of the league on, the, on an island. Pericles would move the capital of the league of these nations, these Greek city-states, uh, to Athens and assert greater control. It would turn into an empire of sorts for Greece, and great treasure flowed into Athens after additional victories on the modern Turkish coast and subsequent naval losses by Persia. Sparta would soon stir itself against Athens, but this hasn't come yet. Persia's response will be to fight a proxy war using finances and alliances to get Greece to self-destruct, and it will work to great effect, giving rise to a resurgent Macedonia a long time from now. Now, this is my personal opinion of the book of Nehemiah time period. The reason for the urgency is hidden in the book. But, it, but if you read it, you can see and you consider the opposition and the corruption in Israel and the overtaxation in Nehemiah 5, there's a key to understanding more about the Nehemiah story. And I see Israel at this time as a power struggle between local warlords. It makes the most sense of the book. It explains the urgency, the escalation, and makes sense of the bullying of the neighbors. Jerusalem has a small population, and it doesn't have an army, and it relies on local militias for defense. And these come from neighboring nation-states who don't actually want them there. The Persian army, when present, provides support, but only when it's present. There's a true power struggle, and there was grievances against Israel due to havoc caused by the time of Haman's genocidal reversal. Their children and grandchildren want to see Israel destroyed. The Persian army ruled over Israel, but the local rulers controlled in their absence. This is the absence, and this absence of the Persian army is kind of what goes on during the book of Nehemiah. Persian authorities rule Israel. Israel had limited self-governance because when the Persian army was not present, local neighboring states with stronger rulers like Sambalat and Tobiah would assert their bullying and authority and especially assert their fear. And these surrounding city-states would actually be responsible in many cases for collecting taxes for the Persians asserting their authority over Jerusalem. This local dominance by its neighbors was causing serious issues for Israel. They didn't want the wall rebuilt, and they owned considerable portions actually of Jerusalem's landmass. They didn't want to lose control. They taxed Jerusalem's citizens in what sounded like a mafia arrangement, and worse, they would even enslave peoples who didn't pay their taxes. The Persians wanted their taxes, and without enough representation, again, Israel would be at a disadvantage. But God always has an answer. Nehemiah is the answer. Nehemiah was not in the royal family or the grand vizier, but he was the cupbearer to the king. 
He was actually the one who would drink wine before it was given to the king in case it was poisoned. So the king actually, the king of Persia, trusted Nehemiah with his own life. A part bodyguard, a part royal substitute if someone wanted to poison the king. A man trusted with the king's life and a faithful unto death servant. Sound familiar? But there's something else about Nehemiah's personality. He's going to be the guy, if you ever take, you know, those personality tests, who are you most like in the Bible um, and such, there's a, there's a character, it's going to be called a ruler, uh, or it's a uh, redemptive gift, or it's um, one of those people who did something astounding and worked incredibly efficient and productive with a short amount of time. He's your Nehemiah in the Bible. Nehemiah 1, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And this is where we see Nehemiah's heart. Nehemiah also knows that he is the man that can do something about it. But he also is something incredibly and unique about Nehemiah is this powerful relationship with God. We actually have in the book of Nehemiah one of those rare cases where someone would actually, he'd be in horizontal dialogue with a person and vertical dialogue with his God. Within the same paragraph, you'll actually see him praying and speaking to people. Nehemiah 1.4 When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you night and day for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Now Nehemiah, in what appears to be sackcloth and ashes, goes into King Artaxerxes, though it could actually cost him alive his life. It was literally illegal to go in before the king in sackcloth and ashes. Um, In other areas of Persia, I think you could actually not even go in the city walls um, dressed this way. But Nehemiah did it anyway. Nehemiah too. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors 
are buried lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, What is it you want? With great favor, Nehemiah receives his heart's cry, recognize the very first thing he does after the king asks him what he wants. He prays. Nehemiah 2, 4. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. And, and, you know, before I keep going, the king says, what do you want? Then Nehemiah says, I prayed. So this is, the king is talking, this is a horizontal. This is men talking. And then I prayed. This is vertical to heaven. Nehemiah 2, 4. And then he goes back to horizontal. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. You see that? Horizontal, vertical, and now horizontal. It's that amazing dialogue of a man who knows God. It's that relationship where you're, you're before a king. It's, it's, it's how you should treat those times in your life when God gives you a divine appointment. In fact, we should always be that way. I said Jesus only did what he saw and heard his father do. It requires an, um, an, an amazing relationship with God to walk in the Spirit. And that's actually the picture of what's happening here with Nehemiah. The king asks, what do you want? He prays and he speaks. Because he prays, the words he speaks are God's words. He's releasing, he's surrendering um, in Proverbs, it says, what do you give, whatever you give to the Lord will be a success. He's, by praying, he's surrendering his conversation to God, and God will speak through Nehemiah. He's a humble servant. Um, it, it also says in the New Testament, do not worry what you say um, when you are before rulers and kings. Here is Nehemiah before the king of Persia. Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found great favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take, and when, when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may have letters to the governors of Tran-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams from the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. The power of the weight and the authority of the king of Persia and his military escort must have irritated the local rulers as Nehemiah showed up in Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem. But he hid his designs. Not only does he get resources, but he has a military escort and letters of assignment and authority. And now Nehemiah becomes the governor of Jerusalem. And when he comes in there, the local rulers... The local warlords, they're freaking out. Nehemiah 2.11 I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set, my, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went through the valley gate toward the jackal gate and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down, its gates which had been destroyed by fire, then I moved on through the 
fountain gate and the king's pool, and there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone and what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or anyone what I would be doing and what work it would be. This is what I love about the story. He knew what his assignment was, but he wisely waited it out. He went on a prayer ride and covered his assignment before announcing it to the people. It's so real and so wisely done. He probably rode over the future place of Calvary just to cover all of his prophetic bases. The next day, he calls the people and assigns the work. One could study all the places, the prophetic symbolism of this book if they wanted to. There's even all the gates mentioned, and they all have meaning. What I love most is that Nehemiah spent his time with the Lord prior to any move that he did, and we have all these vertical exchanges. Such a man of prayer. He rode, he covered himself in prayer. In the morning, he announces his plan to the entirety of the assembly of the people. Nehemiah 2.17 Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer live in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this great work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is it you are doing, they said. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Now we see the, the announcing of the project and the people jumping on board, but as well the opposition was immediately present. And, and I even believe that, you know, the Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem were actually in Jerusalem when this was announced because they had land holdings in Jerusalem. They were encroaching and encroaching. They were there, and they wanted to create fear and indecision and hatred amongst the populace. But Nehemiah was a man on a mission. He was devoted to his assignment, and he got the people motivated. And this was twofold in why he was building a wall. It was a future way to remove people that shouldn't have been in the city, like faulty landowners of other nationalities. There was identity building in the process, and the entirety of the nation will rally in this cause. Something interesting is that Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem were present when he announced this. Why were they in Jerusalem? It tells you the real mess Israel was in. Men of power from another nation casually walking in and out of Jerusalem asserting their authority. Nehemiah 3 covers um, the areas of the wall and who builds them. The Levites repaired the sheep gate. The men of Jericho and other surrounding areas helped as well. Nehemiah required families to repair their adjoining parts of the wall. It was the families that enlisted even their children and their sons and daughters to support the effort. There was a section completed by a perfume maker. There was goldsmiths and a man with daughters that helped. Entire families on the wall owned sections of the wall. This was his delegation that he would assign a family this section of the wall because their house adjoined it, and they were required to do it. It was a, a family mobilization, and there was an ownership aspect to it, and with it there was a rallying of all types of people, including children, including 
daughters, including the entirety of the nation in this effort to finish this wall. Against tradition and starting to form a new tradition, entire families and even daughters are mentioned assisting with the labor. So let's stop here for it turns into a uh, two-episode story, and let's cover some real-time application here. What is a wall? What is its purpose? It's a barrier created to um, create a separation to enable protection against outside threats. It's also a border, a separation to create identity and its, its growth and to prevent outside influences. In the case of the wall of Jerusalem, it was a symbolic move as well of ridding the nation of sin and shame of outside religions. Let's consider what it's like for you and me. Proverbs 4.23 Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. What we are to each hold dear is that purity which we're striving for. Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We must guard our heart and be ruthless that the things of the world that that want to control us. It is okay to be ruthless about sin. Kill it. It must die. It has no part in you. Sin doesn't belong in us, though we walk amongst many sinners in this world. Also, the wall can represent the body of Christ, the church. We build a wall to not keep the world out, but to keep it pure from sin. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Never think we're to kick out sinners from our church. No, welcome them. But the heart of the church is to remain pure. When sin and control of the enemy is diagnosed, our response to sin is, is the Nehemiah face-like flint determination and steadfast spirit response. I will build this wall. We will build this wall. We are making a statement, and we will build it with tenacity of spirit. His response to the voices of darkness, the God of heaven will give us success. We as servants will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Immediately, the enemy went to work in fear, his primary language, to create intimidation combined with mockery and challenge. The threats were there, Upon Nehemiah, the wall, the people, and even assassination plots were afoot. To kill, steal, and destroy, control was being lost by the enemy, territory was being pushed back, and the hornet's nest was stirred. But Nehemiah was only more focused to complete his task. All it takes is a spark. We have a wood-burning fireplace in our Pacific Northwest home in Issaquah, Washington, and we constantly had a fire burning during the Christmas season. And I noticed something I thought was profound. After the fire burned for hours, even if the fire was virtually out with just coals remaining, just sitting there, all we had to do was just poke it once or twice or throw a fresh log on the coals and nearly instantly the flame erupted again. The reason was the heat. The fire had accumulated so much heat, the fireplace was raging hot. Just a little fresh oxygen or fuel was all it needed. The fire was strong and powerful and only needed a little bit of stirring. And this is how I feel about Nehemiah in this scene. Israel was burning hot. Their nation had just been reborn. They had returned to the promised land. There was impurities in the land. Some were operating in fear and not in the spirit. But they just needed a Nehemiah to show up to inspire them, to stir up the gift of God within them, to inspire the people to greatness, to zeal, to purpose, energy, The result was a nationwide effort that led to an incredible engineering achievement in the midst of an escalating drama and an awesome God story. 2 Timothy 1.6 For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. 
we can all be like Nehemiah. The account of Nehemiah is like a two-month story of a man of God who mourned for something that was out of place in his country. He received revelation of what it should be like, and, and he knew reality fell far short. He petitioned the powers that be and received their support and was constantly in communication with God. When he received physical support and blessing, he rallied his people with zeal and purpose and stirred or fanned into flame and a fire that was already extremely hot. The lumbering logs from the king's royal park set aflame the gift of God in Jerusalem. Take this account and find it as inspiration. Anything out of place in your world? Repent over it. Mourn over it. Go to God over it. He has the answer to every question, and it just may be you. I love how Jesus told the disciples to pray to send laborers into the harvest field, and soon after it was them that were sent on evangelism assignments. You are God's answer to the problems around you. Seek Him out, pray for solutions, and you will be the one that will set the world ablaze around you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com. Share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.